Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. I've been thinking this week about chameleons. We don't have them around here, but if you've ever spent much time in Florida, you've surely seen them. You know, those little reptiles that climb up walls and run across patios. They're famous for changing colors. And uh, I've learned recently that they don't change colors just for the sake of changing colors. Typically, chameleons only change colors when they're feeling threatened, when they're scared. And when that happens, their blood vessels dilate and certain special pigmentation cells get pushed to the surface of their skin, and that's how they change colors. I couldn't help but think this week about how often we're like chameleons. We don't go around changing our colors just for the sake of changing colors, but when as Christians we find ourselves in situations that are uncomfortable, when uh, we feel like the, we're the being the least bit threatened when the heat is being turned on up on us. Uh, just watch how quickly we can change colors. We've all experienced it. We all know too well that flush of embarrassment that rises in your cheeks when somebody is drawing attention to the fact that you're a Christian. It's that awkward moment in the restaurant when you're out with some Christian friends and the food has been served, and then you look at each other as if to say, well, are we going to do it? And if we're going to do it, are we each going to do it individually, silently, or are we, each, are we going to pray out loud together? And if we do that, which one of us is going to do it? Can we just please get this over before the whole restaurant starts looking at us? <laughs> it's that moment that's captured in Norman Rockwell's famous painting, Saying Grace, you know, where you have the the boy and his grandmother sitting at a diner table in a city restaurant. Their heads are bowed and their hands are folded, giving thanks for their food, while a couple of rough-looking characters are looking on across the table as if to say, what are you doing? Maybe you'll have one of those moments when you start a new semester at school and you walk into the cafeteria at lunchtime, your stomach's in knots because you don't know where you're going to sit and if there's going to be anybody to to sit with, or you're going to end up eating lunch all by yourself, and then to your great relief, you see a couple of friends, and there's an open spot, and so you go over, and you, you put your tray down, and, and you're sitting there, and then comes that moment. Are you going to bow your head and give thanks for your food the way you might do at home, or are you going to play the chameleon, kind of change your colors and just blend right in? Or maybe that moment will come for you on a Friday night after a big game and some of your teammates will say, hey, you want to come and party with us? And you've been kind of waiting all season long since the beginning of training camp to finally be accepted by these guys. And so it kind of feels good that they're inviting you along. But you know full well that 
they're going to party in a way that you as a Christian should not participate in. There's going to be underage drinking and there are going to be joints passed around and maybe worse. And so uh, you face that choice, you know, are you going to take a stand as a Christian, say no thanks, or are you going to change your colors and just kind of fit in, go with the flow? Maybe it'll happen for you at a bus stop waiting with other parents as you wait for the school bus to pick up your kids. And one of the moms starts worrying out loud about her oldest daughter, a teenager who has been, uh, as she says, I think she's getting involved in a cult or something. And the more she talks, the more you realize she's talking about the youth ministry at your church. She says all she ever does anymore is go to their Bible studies and hang out with those crazy born-again kids. Other parents are looking on with worried expressions and shaking their heads. What do you do? Do you speak up and identify yourself as a born-againer whose kids go to that youth group? Or do you kind of play the chameleon, change your colors, and fade in, and by your silence reinforce that mom's paranoia? Or perhaps it'll happen for you at work this week when your boss calls and says, I need you to do something for me. I'm way across town trying to close the deal with SPG Technologies, but those folks from Johnson Company are coming in any moment. They're expecting our presentation for them to be ready. So I, I need you to tell them that I'm stuck in traffic, really, really bad traffic, and I'll get there as soon as I can. And you face a dilemma as a Christian. It goes against every fiber of your being to lie, but you don't want to upset your boss. Do you take a stand and say, boss, I'll do whatever I can to help you, but I'm not going to lie for you? Or do you play the chameleon and change your colors and just go along with what the boss wants? You know, we all experience it. We all have that fear. What if someone finds out I'm a Christian and they despise me for it? What if someone takes offense at my convictions and rejects me or ridicules me? How should we handle those moments when we feel as if the searchlight has been turned on us and we're, we're tempted to think the world is looking at us in, dis, in disdain and, and we're feeling like we should just change our colors, play the chameleon, and disappear into the woodwork? Well, today we're going to look at a story in which a faithful man of God faced that exact situation. We're going to see how he dealt with angry people who despised his faith, and in the process, we're going to learn where we can find courage to resist the temptation to play the chameleon, where we can find courage to take a stand for Christ. Daniel lived for 65 years or more in a climate that was hostile to his faith. As a young man, he and some of his friends were taken captive from their home in Jerusalem or in Israel and, and taken captive to Babylon where they were enrolled in the king's university to prepare for a career in public service. You may remember how early on Daniel and his friends adopted a policy of cooperation without conformity. They would do their very best to serve the king, but they would not compromise their convictions as Hebrews. We saw how God rewarded the stand that Daniel and his friends took by distinguishing them and, and making them wiser than all of their contemporaries. Daniel, in particular, served Nebuchadnezzar especially well and became the chief of all the wise men of Babylon and served faithfully through the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, who reigned for 42 years. And as we saw last week, 
Daniel then apparently came out of a semi-retirement to pronounce God's judgment on King Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's arrogant and defiant successor. And then when Darius the Mede, uh, the king of the Medes and Persians, conquered Babylon, Daniel once again found himself rising to take a leadership role within that new administration. And it was in the service of King Darius, after many prosperous years of service uh, to the kings of, of that region, at the age of about 82... Daniel faces the greatest test of his life, a threat so severe that if he doesn't play the chameleon, it will almost certainly cost him his life. So let's look together at the story of Daniel here in Daniel chapter 6, and and we'll learn together some important lessons that will help us deal with those times when the pressure is on and we're tempted to play the chameleon. I want you to see, first of all, how Daniel got stuck in this life-threatening predicament to begin with. Basically, all Daniel was doing was minding his own business and doing his best to serve the king. And and look what happens at the beginning of verse 1. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three officials, high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps would give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So you see what's happening here. Darius quickly learns that the, the kingdom is too big for him to manage on his own. He needs some help. And so he divides the kingdom into 120 satrapies or districts and he puts a satrap over each of these districts, their job was to make sure that the king was not being cheated out of any of the tax revenue that was due him, and they were to kind of make sure to, to put, an, uh, put down any uprisings that might be brewing within their districts. Now, over these 120 satraps, he put three high officials or uh, three administrators, presumably each administrator supervised 40 of the satraps and was accountable to the king for the satrapies he oversaw. And that way, the king only had to deal with three direct reports instead of all 120. Now, Daniel was one of those three, and it didn't take long before Darius began to notice that Daniel was head and shoulders above all the other administrators both in his ability, but also where his integrity was concerned. It says that an excellent spirit was in him. No one was more faithful in protecting the king's interests than Daniel. No one could be trusted more completely. And so uh, the king decided to put Daniel in charge of the whole works. But the others were intended intended to bring Daniel down. It says in verse 4, Then the high officials and satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel and with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground of complaint or fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. What was their problem with Daniel? It's going to hint later on in the text that there certainly was some some racial bigotry going on here. They despised Daniel because he was a foreigner, one of those exiles from Judah. But there's also undoubtedly jealousy here because Daniel's being promoted to the best job and that sense of jealousy is intensified by the fact that the job is going to a Jew. But even more than that, I have to wonder if they aren't motivated by the fact that they know that Daniel's going to play by the book and he's going to make them all play by the book, which means that he would zealously protect the king's interest and that would spell an end of taking payments under the table and under-reporting the tax income that was due the king, which was kind of a way that a lot of people in those days kind of enriched themselves 
they looked for some grounds for charges against Daniel, but he was such a competent guy and such a man of integrity that verse 4 says they were unable to find anything on him. They could find no corruption because he was utterly trustworthy. They could find no incompetence because he was, he was so good at his job. He wasn't on the take, and they couldn't find any blame with the job he did. They knew that if they were going to bring Daniel down, they have to find some other way of making him look bad to the king. And that's where verse 5 comes in. It says, Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. You see, Daniel was not only known to be a man of integrity and to be a really competent administrator, but he was also known for his walk with God. They knew that if they ever put Daniel in a position where he had to choose between his loyalty to the king and his loyalty to his God, he would choose loyalty to his God over the king any old day of the week. And so the plot begins to take shape. They devise a legal way to have Daniel murdered and get him out of the way. In verse 6, it says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the documents so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, Darius, sign the document and injunction." Do you notice how they deceive the king? They go to him and they say, everybody's in agreement. All the governors, all the satraps, all the high officials, which certainly couldn't be true because Daniel would never have agreed to such a thing. But they flatter Darius. And to his ears, the request sounds utterly reasonable because in the minds of Persian kings, they thought themselves to be sons of the gods, a representative of the gods to the people. And so for the people to pray only to him for the next 30 days would further consolidate the kingdom under his rule. Everyone would be forced to recognize their dependency on him. It was a bold public relations move, a way to remind everybody that there was a new and benevolent king in town who would be to them as a son of the gods. And so Darius signs the document and he seals it with his signet ring and that made it utterly binding and irrevocable. Because unlike other Near Eastern monarchs who thought that they themselves were the law, the Medes and the Persians had this idea that even the king himself was under the law. And so when a law was passed and it was signed and sealed and delivered by the king, It became irrevocable. Not even the king himself could go against it. Not even the king could change it. There is an example in Persian literature of a time when a man was convicted of murder and sentenced to death, and the order was sealed by the king. And then more information came that proved that the man was innocent, that he could not have done the crime. But because of the, the law of the Medes and Persians, which could not be revoked, the man could not be saved. Even though everyone knew he was innocent, he had to be put to death. And so that's what's happening here. Darius seals his decree at the insistence of his evil flatterers. So you see, what gets Daniel into this predicament is the fact that everyone knows him to be uncompromising in his devotion to God. His enemies use that against him with devastating effect. 
So let's pause for a moment to consider a very important lesson that this teaches us. And that is that godly character won't go unnoticed. Godly character won't go unnoticed. You cannot hide a genuine walk with God. If you are a devoted follower of Jesus, it's going to show. Sometimes we kid ourselves and think that we can have it both ways. You know, I can be a a follower of Christ and I can fit in with the crowd too. But Daniel's example shows us that you can't grow to be the person that God would have you to be and expect to keep that a secret. In fact, if people aren't noticing there's something different about you, well, then something's really wrong with your walk. It should come as no surprise to other kids at school that you bow your head at the table before you eat your lunch. Your friends should have drawn the conclusion that you're a Christian long before that because you don't curse the way other kids do. You don't mock people the way other kids do. You're respectful of your teachers, you're kind to your classmates, so that when you bow your head at lunch, everybody kind of takes it for granted and says, well, of course, he's a Christian. The other parents at the bus stop may not know you very well just yet, but after, later in the year, after you've gotten together with some of them a time or two for a cup of coffee, the whole scenario at the bus stop might change. When that mom starts worrying about her daughter being involved in the youth group, someone might say, hey, Mary, isn't that the youth minister your kids are involved in? People knew that Daniel was committed to God. He was known for that. If you're truly committed to Christ, it won't be long before people know that about you. Count on it. You can't have it both ways. You can't live for Christ and just blend in with the crowd. Expect that sooner or later, someone is going to draw attention to the fact that you are a follower of Jesus. And that being the case, you can also expect that somebody's going to have it in for you. It's inevitable. Why? It's because, as Mark Twain once put it, There are few things so difficult to live with as the annoyance of a good example. They didn't like the idea that they'd have to report to a straight arrow like Daniel. And sooner or later, someone's going to take issue with you. What then? When someone starts taking issue with your commitment to Christ, what will you do? How will you respond? Will you play the chameleon, quickly change your colors, as if to say, You know, I'm I'm much more like you than it might first appear. You know, I'm not one of those whacked out Christians. You know that doesn't honor Christ. But where can we find the strength to take a stand? And that's where the example of Daniel helps us again. Think of what Daniel must have been going through. What was going through his mind when he heard that this edict had been passed by the king What should he do? There's more at stake for him than just a promotion. He knows that what he does in the next few hours could be a life or death matter for him. Should he play their game? Certainly God would understand if he just held off praying for the next 30 days. Or if, you know, he just closed his windows and had his devotion in secret instead of out in front of everybody, as was his custom. Daniel's obviously concerned about this, and it says in verse 11, he's seeking God's help in it all. The easiest thing for Daniel would have been to play the chameleon. Change his colors, just blend right in. Stop praying altogether. Hey, I'm no fanatical troublemaker. Go along to get along. That's what I always say. You know how to stay out of the lion's den. Just change your colors. Fit right in. But then, of course, nobody will preach sermons about you or take courage from your example. 
Nobody will hold you up as a hero of the faith. In fact, they may not even remember your name. And remember what Jesus said about chameleons. In Luke 9, 26, Jesus himself said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. But how does Daniel handle it? He stays the course. He refuses to back down. He decides not to let them change him. Look at verse 10, where it says, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks to, before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. It's important to note that Daniel had a discipline of communing with God. He had a special place in that upstairs room with the windows open toward Jerusalem. And when Daniel went up the stairs, everyone in the household knew where he was going and what he was going to do. And he went there frequently, three times a day. The whole pace of his busy life was governed by this godly rhythm. You know, I don't know anybody who gets to be very godly without this kind of habit, habit of communing with God on a regular basis. You know, note Daniel's manner as well. He's kneeling, which is a sign of his humility before God. He gives thanks. Even, even in the midst of this great threat, he is quick to thank God for his many blessings. He does everything just as he had done it before. This is not something new. If he was starting this up new, well, that would have been disrespectful to Darius. But if he had stopped doing this, what he had always been doing, that would have been disrespectful of the Lord. It would suggest that saving his skin was more important than honoring his God. Had Daniel played the chameleon now, he would have denied the value of a whole lifetime of walking with God. It was all those other times in God's presence that had prepared him for this time. Philip Hale wrote about a little village in France called Les Chambons. It was a town whose people, unlike others in France, hid their Jews from the Nazis. Hale went there wondering what sort of courageous, ethical heroes would risk all to do such extraordinary good. And he went and he interviewed the people of that village and was overwhelmed by their ordinariness. They weren't heroes or smart, discerning people. In fact, the only thing that Hale could find they had in common was that they all attended their little village church every Sunday. It was a little Protestant church. These were descendants of, of the persecuted French Huguenot Protestants. And they went to church every Sunday where they heard the sermons of a faithful pastor named Trochme. Over time, they became by habit people who just knew what to do and did it. And when the time came for them to be courageous, the day the Nazis came to town, they quietly did what was right. One old woman said, Pastor always taught us that when the time comes, in, there comes a time in every life when a person is asked to do something for Jesus. And when our time came, we knew what to do. You see, true habits of the heart are there when they're most needed. There is still something to be said for having spiritual disciplines in our lives. We need these godly habits of the heart, not only to help us grow in our walk with God, but also to prepare us for those times when our walk is put to the test. We need to have those regular times of prayer to know that every day, this time is the time I spend with God. 
is a way of forcing the busyness of my life to march to a godly rhythm. There need to be times when the family is gathered, perhaps at the dinner table, and we know that before we all rush off, we're going to stop and pray for one another. There's still something to be said for gathering together in the middle of a busy week so that church members can intercede for one another and for the life of the church. We need to have regular times in the Word of God, reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, studying it. If you don't have any of these disciplines in your life, you won't know what to do when the pressure is on. When the heat gets turned up on you, you'll probably just play the chameleon. It'll keep you out of the lion's den, but you won't feel very good about yourself. But if you've been with God recently, and you've been in God's word, learning his ways and and learning his promises never to leave you nor forsake you, then it's much more likely that when the pressure is on, you won't cave in. And when the heat gets turned up, you won't change your colors. Daniel's example teaches us a second very important lesson. And that is that backbone comes from being in the habit of spending time with God. Backbone comes from being in the habit of spending time with God. If you spent time with God before school in the morning, it'll be a whole lot easier to bow your head and give thanks at the lunch table at noon. Even if your best friend is nudging you and saying, what are you doing? And you say, I'm giving thanks for my food. I always thank God for my food before I eat. And he says, but everybody's looking. And you say, they'll get used to it. Or the guys are waiting for you on Friday night and they say, come on, Anderson, aren't you going to party with us? You're not going to wimp out on us, are you? And the scripture verse pops into your head that you've been memorizing recently. Proverbs 13, 20, that says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. And God brings that to mind and you say, you know what, guys, I'm going to take a pass. I'll see you at practice on Monday. And they walk off mocking you out, but down deep inside, you know you've done the right thing. Or earlier that morning, before heading to the bus stop, you were reading in Acts chapter 4 about how after being persecuted, the Christians in Jerusalem asked God to give them even greater boldness to, to proclaim Jesus. And then this, and, and you stopped and prayed right there on the spot, asking God to make you bolder in your witness. And then this conversation about crazy born-againers comes up at the bus stop, and you can hardly believe how calmly you speak up and say, oh, I'm one of those born-again people. In fact, my kids go to that youth group, and it's been great for them. Uh, This born-again stuff isn't so weird as some people make it sound. You know, it was Jesus himself who talked about how we need to be born physically into this world, but then we need to be born spiritually to have a relationship with God. If you're interested, I'll sit down and explain it to you sometimes so you can understand more what your daughter's getting into. Or your boss asks you to lie to cover for him. Either you lie for me or you get fired. And you say, boss, I'll do everything I can to help you out, but I can't lie for you. And you know you wouldn't have been able to do that if you hadn't such a great time with the Lord before work that morning. Oh, sure you say, but, but look what happened to Daniel for being so uncompromising in his convictions. And it's true, it doesn't look good at first for Daniel. His enemies are lying in wait, ready to spring the trap. 
Look again at verse 11, and it says, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and they said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Now note the bigotry of Daniel's accusers coming through loud and clear in the next verse. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. He's really fond of Daniel. He's going to try every way he can to find a loophole to get Daniel off the hook. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king, and they said to the king, No, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be, uh, can be changed. Yeah, the king has been caught in the trap, not just Daniel. Then the king commanded that Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. The den is sealed. There's no possibility of intervention. Daniel is left alone with the lions. There is no escape. He refused to play the chameleon, and he wound up in the lion's den. But you know, and I know, that's not the end of the story, and it's not the end of Daniel. In fact, as it turns out, the king ends up having a worse night than Daniel. The king is worrying all night, can't sleep a wink, while Daniel's having a nice chat with an angel. It says in verse 18, Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him. Sleep fled from him. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came to near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Strikes me as really interesting that the king even holds out this possibility Daniel's character must have been such that he thought, well, if the gods are going to deliver anybody, it's going to be this guy. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the mouth of the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. This was simply the Persian way, folks. The whole family paid for the crimes of the head of the household. And just in case there was any doubt about whether these lions were really hungry, verse 24 goes on to say, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. 
He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now here's the most important lesson of all from this passage. Here's where we find the greatest motivation to take our stand and not play the chameleon. The bottom line of Daniel chapter six, it seems to me, is that God rewards uncompromising devotion. God rewards uncompromising devotion. When you take a stand for Christ and are made to suffer for it, that is never the end of the story. God always has the last word. He personally takes care of those who refuse to back down when the pressure is on. And so when you say your bit about being born again, maybe that bus stop mom turns on you and says, no one with a brain in their head can possibly believe that stuff. And whether her attitude ever softens and she takes you up on your offer to explain it, at least you have had the satisfaction of knowing Jesus said, if people persecute you or say bad things about you because of me, be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. But whether any good of it comes of it here or now, and you know that God will reward the stand you took, but you don't always have to wait until heaven to get your reward. Sometimes when you take a stand for Christ, he'll do the most amazing things right before your very eyes, as he did with Daniel. Maybe if instead of mocking you, the bus stop mom will say, huh, I never understood it that way before. Sure would put my mind at ease if you could explain it to me and what my daughter's getting into. You know, when can we get together? Who knows but that you might just be used of God to bring that bus stop mom to Christ. Or maybe on Monday morning, one of the guys on the team comes to you and says, man, that party Friday night was really bad news. Every time I hang out with those guys, I get into trouble. What are you doing this Friday after the game? Maybe we can hang out together. Or the boss gets back from his crosstown appointment and he finds you packing your personal things in a box. And he says, what are you doing? And you said, well, you told me if I wouldn't lie for you that I was fired. I wouldn't lie, so I guess I'm fired. And maybe he'll say, oh, don't be ridiculous. Get your things back on your desk. We've got work to do. Or maybe it doesn't turn out that way. Maybe he says, yeah, okay, you're fired then. And you arrive home before your son gets home from junior high. And he says, why are you home so early, mom? And you tell him, I got fired today. He says, fired? What happened? And you tell him the story about how your boss wanted you to lie and you couldn't do it because of your convictions as a Christian. And so he fired you. As a single mom, you don't know how you're going to pay the bills. You don't know how you're going to keep groceries on the table for you and your Son, but you tell your son that this is a time the two of you will just have to trust God to take care of you. The next Sunday, the two of you go to church, and you notice that instead of rushing off to go sit with some of his friends, he decides to sit with you for a change. And as the congregation stands to sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, as we're about to do in a few minutes, as you sing, Great is Your Faithfulness, your eyes begin to fill with tears and your voice gets tight because you've never needed to cling to those words as you do in this moment. And your son glances at you out of the corner of his eye and he sees the tears streaming down your face. He's learned something very powerful about you in the last few days, how just so very important all of this is to you. 
And as you sing, you feel his arm slip around your back and his hand rest on your opposite shoulder. And you hear him sing that song with an interest and an intensity that you've never heard in him before. And suddenly you realize that what God has given you in that moment is worth more than any old job. God rewards uncompromising devotion. He honors those who dare take a stand for him. He personally cares for those who refuse to back down when the pressure is on. So be strong, be courageous. When the heat is getting turned up, when you're starting to feel threatened, when you feel yourself starting to change colors as if to blend in, say, no, I won't compromise. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I will not back down for you. You can't hide godly character. Take a stand. Backbone comes from spending plenty of time with God, so stay the course. God rewards uncompromising devotion, so trust him. No one ever amounted to much by playing the chameleon, but God himself delights in the conviction of a Daniel. Let's pray. Father, we confess all those times when we've played the chameleon, when we felt the heat on us and we've changed our colors and we've tried to fade in. We've tried to have it both ways, to be a follower of Jesus and, and to do what the world wants us to do. Lord, I pray that you would prepare us, even as we've been under the hearing of your word and we've seen the example of Daniel and, and, and we've thought about its implications for our lives. Lord, may we be people who stand strongly for the Lord Jesus Christ without compromise. We know it's not in us to do that. It's not in our flesh to, to take that kind of stand. And so we ask, Lord Jesus, that by your life within us, the power of your spirit who dwells within us, you would equip us, enable us to stand strong for you. Lord, we want nothing less than to bring honor to you and to your son. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for the gift of life itself. We thank you for your love for us while we were still sinners. We thank you for giving your son his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We thank you that through faith in him, we can be forgiven and be brought into a right relationship with you and have the, the assurance of eternal life. And having been given all of that, Lord, how could we play the chameleon? How, how could we fade into the woodwork and fail to identify with you? So Lord Jesus, we pray. Give us the courage and the strength by the power of your spirit to bear bold testimony for you and, and the saving grace and goodness of our God whose faithfulness to us is great. We thank you for all of this and pray that you would do your work in us through Jesus our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. 